Oh Lord, our God, we come to you now in this sacred place, in this sacred time, with these sacred saints. We come before you to confess that you alone are God, that you are high and exalted, that you are over all creation. You are the first and the last, the alpha and the omega. You are the uncreated ruler of the universe. And by your hand were all things made and by your hand are all things sustained. And God, we confess that we are so prone to wonder. We're so prone to choose our own way over your way. God, we're so prone to sin. God, we ask you to forgive us this morning for the things that we have done that are against your will, that are against your ways, that are against your nature, and for the things that we've left undone that are also against your ways. God, we thank you for your forgiveness. We thank you that you promised to remove our sins as far as east is from west through the sacrifice and the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And God, we come to you this morning just begging for your wisdom, begging for your direction, begging for your holiness to enter into our lives and to transform us so that we can say it is no longer I who live, but Christ in me. God, we have so many people in our hurt who are just, our church who are hurting, who are, are reeling from grief, from pain, from loss. Lord, uh, uh, on this anniversary of the death of loved ones, God, for, for those who are planning funerals, God, for those who have loved ones who are in the hospital right now, God, for those who are anxiously awaiting test results, for those who are battling terminal illnesses, God, we lift them to you. We lift them to your throne knowing that you are good and you are sovereign and that you are the great physician and that we can claim that we have no fear. No matter what happens, God, we trust that you hold our future and we can rest assured in that blessed assurance that we have a light and momentary affliction in this life that is just preparing us for the next degree of glory in the next life. But in the meantime, oh God, I pray that you would so conform us to your image that we would be useful to you and to your kingdom that you would work through Woodmont Baptist Church to advance the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ into all the world. I pray that you would use us to make Nashville and Waverly and other places more like heaven and less like hell. God, we lift up those to you again who are trying to put back their lives after natural disasters, after divorce, after the death of a loved one, after uh, loss of a job, after all these insecurities that we face in this life, oh God, we ask that you would bear them up, that you would encourage them, that your spirit would be with them. The Bible tells us that you are close to the brokenhearted. God, we pray that they would feel your presence with them in this very moment and know that you are our good, good Father. Lord, we pray as you taught your disciples to pray, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come and thy will be done 
on earth as it is in heaven. And give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you for being here today again. Uh, we're going to continue our series in Isaiah, but we start a new series. And Andy, our communications director and graphic designer, got a little creative, a little playful with the graphic for this month of September. Uh, we're talking about the idea of I need a hero. My apologies to all you Gen Xers out there who now have the flash dance soundtrack stuck in your head. I, I'm sorry for that. Uh, we're going to close in on the, the last third of the mighty book of Isaiah. The, the book of Isaiah is known as the fifth gospel because it talks so much about Jesus, the Messiah, who's coming to rescue God's people. Remember, this part of Isaiah is addressing God's people at a time of, of really dismal circumstance. You think we have it bad now with COVID and everything else we're facing? They had been taken as slaves, kidnapped and carried off into a pagan land of Babylon where they served the Babylonians as slaves. And yes, God had a plan to, to free them and to send them back home to Jerusalem, but that's not the only kind of deliverance that they needed. What we're going to see in chapters 48 through 53 this month is even if we escape one kind of captivity, we can still be enslaved by the shackles of sin and separation from God. Isaiah tells us the bad news, right? He doesn't sugarcoat it. He tells us that sin will absolutely destroy us. It will consume us if it's up to us to handle but he also gives us the good news that, that a hero has been sent to deal with us and our sin. That God is going to send a rescuer who is mighty to save, who is able to redeem us. He will be the anointed one, the Messiah, the Mashiach, the Christ, the one who will save we often like to think of ourselves as the hero, or maybe I should just say I like to think of myself as the hero. I don't know about you, but what we're, we're going to see in Isaiah is that we're actually more like that, you know, falling lady who's this close to the pavement and, and Superman swoops in at the last minute and saves her. That's, that's more who we are really in this story. So we're going to start with chapter 48, uh, where we get a glimpse of this hero, just a glimpse. The next week we're going to flesh out the, the hero a little bit more in chapter 49. But we're going to see this chosen servant of God. And the whole chapter is, is, is confrontational, yes. But if we look closely, we'll see that it's also a reassuring word that our rescuer will indeed save us. We can trust that rescue is going to be certain. And we need that word today, or at least I do. I don't know about you, but I need a word of assurance, of reassurance. You know, I'm sure we've all known someone who's experienced profound loss over the past year. Many of you have seen uh, the last couple of days that our state now leads the nation in, in COVID transmissions. We also lead the, the state in, in COVID transmission among children. 
now, which is, is deeply concerning as a, a parent of three children myself. How do we know that, that, that it's gonna be okay? How do we know that all of this is, is somehow going somewhere good? Who, who do we look to, to to save us? Where do we find true comfort and assurance? Where do we find a word of hope that is valid and true and meaningful? You know, Jude, our 12-year-old, is, is playing flag football once again this year as a, a sixth grader because his parents wouldn't let him play tackle football. Uh, but... He, he loves it, and he's getting to play a little quarterback, which he enjoys, and he's got a playbook that's pretty thick, actually, that he studies, and he's learned all these plays, and uh, he was at a scrimmage last week, and I told him, now, Jude, remember, your coach is the one who calls the plays. You don't, you don't get to second-guess the coach. You don't get to pick the plays. The coach knows best. Not that Jude ever would assume that he knows better, but just as a word of precaution, just wanted him to remember that, and he said, oh, Dad, don't worry about it. The coach is really good. The coach actually, he calls really good plays, and I trust him. What we're going to see in Isaiah is that the coach who has written our playbook is a really good coach, that we can trust him to call the right plays for us at the right time. We can know that our coach is absolutely to always be trusted. And that we're going to see that rescue is certain because of who he is. Rescue is certain if we will pay attention to who our coach really is. We're going to be led out of captivity, just like God's people walked through the Red Sea and out of slavery in Egypt, just like they walked out of Babylon and ended up going back home to Jerusalem. We too can walk out of sorrow and despair and uh, brokenness and sin if we'll just listen and pay attention to the hero, to the servant of the Lord. I've broken this chapter down into, into four parts for today. We're going to see that rescue is certain. It's going to happen. First, we're going to see that it's certain not because of who we are. Chapter 48, verses 1 to 8 are going to show us clearly it's not because we're so great that we're going to be rescued. But Part two, we're going to see it's because of who God is in verses 9 to 13. And then third, we're going to see a gracious invitation to come and meet the rescuer, to hear the words of the hero who speaks to us. And finally, we're going to see that rescue leads to peace and praise, the result of our rescue. I don't know about you, but I, I could use some peace in my life and, and, and long to glorify the Lord from a heart of gratitude we're going to see that that's possible because of our hero. We can live in grateful joy and security. So let's start with verses 1 and 2 here in chapter 48. We're going to get an honest look at who we really are. It's a wake-up call that we are not the hero of this story. Hear now the word of the Lord. Hear this, O house of Jacob, who are called by the name of Israel and who came from the waters of Judah who swear by the name of the Lord and confess the God of Israel, but not in truth or right. For they call themselves after the holy city and stay themselves on the God of Israel. The Lord of hosts is his name. What is the number one objection to Christianity among non-Christians? 
You ever talk to somebody about church and invite them to church? What's, what's the most common uh, problem that we hear with Christianity? What's the largest stumbling block that people can't get over when it comes to the Christian faith? It's usually not a doctrine. It's not the idea of three in one or the you know, Trinity. It's not the idea of, of salvation through Christ even. Usually the, the number one objection to Christianity is Christians, right? You heard this before? People who are, are so uh, afraid of, of coming to church and upset with Christianity say things like, well, Christianity would be great if it wasn't for all those awful Christians. <laughs> or I love Jesus, but I hate the church. I've heard that before. They say we're hypocrites. And you know what? They're right. They're right. We're going to see that here. God's people here, uh, you know, have been called by God to be his special family to enjoy this, this special relationship with who he is as the children of God, to experience that intimacy with a good, holy father. But they don't call God by his name except when they need it. They, they claim to be his people, but they don't act like it. Sure, they would swear by his mighty name when it was convenient for them, when it served their purpose, but they didn't back it up by surrendering their lives to him in gratitude for who he is and what he's done. Let me ask you that. Again, are you a hypocrite? <laughs> I say that I love God with my whole heart, and yet so often my heart goes after things that are not of God. I tend to get angry, proud, jealous, and, and not in a kind of righteous way that Jesus sort of did, but in just a downright sinful way. Those people are, are right when they say that the church is full of sinners. I tell my kids, you know, I, I make sad choices. We use that word in my house a lot, sad choices. <laughs> and I tell them, I make sad choices every day and have to repent. The church is full of sinners. Ray Ortland puts it this way. Those people who say, uh, those people say Christianity isn't true. It can't be true. Look at the people in the church. They're sinners just like everybody else. That's how the world often thinks about the church. But the logic of God is different. Ortland goes on to say that God replies, Christianity must be true. Look at the people in the church. They're sinners just like everybody else. You see, the, the way that, that God works is different from the world. Skeptics assume that Christianity is all about us being, you know, some kind of good little Christians that earn our way to heaven, that are good enough to go to heaven on our own. But that's not the gospel. The gospel is all about grace, that God alone is good, and that he chooses to save sinners like you and me. So the next time that someone tells you that the church is full of hypocrites, just say, yep, you're right. <laughs> and if you come join us, you'll be one more. <laughs> you're welcome. You'll be one more sinner that God saves by his amazing grace. You see, God proves to the world that he is the mighty, gracious God by choosing to save people who could not save themselves. God isn't limited by hypocrites. It doesn't offend him that his people stumble. He's been very faithful still. He's not limited by this. 
He's, he's been with us every step of the way, guiding the church, exploding the church onto the world, not because of who we are, but in spite of who we are. Look at the next three verses, starting in verse three. The former things I declared of old, God says, they went out from my mouth and I announced them. And suddenly I did them and they came to pass because I know that you are obstinate and your neck is an iron sinew and your forehead brass. He's saying you're stiff necked and hard headed. Surely he's not talking about me, right? I declare, don't ask my wife or my mom that. I declared them to you from of old. Before they came to pass, I announced them to you. Lest you should say, my idol did them. My carved image, my metal image commanded them. You know, when good things happen in our life, we're so prone to say things like, well, I sure have worked hard for that. I really deserve that one. We tend to look to our idols still to justify the blessings that God graciously has bestowed on us. We see blessings as validation of our idols instead of proof of God's constant gracious provision. You know, a couple of weeks ago, I walked into our staff meeting and I told them just honestly, guys, I've, I've had a hard week. We've had some, some beloved church members who, who've transitioned from this life to the next. All of my fall plans and ideas just kind of got shot by the Delta variant. You know, I'm just really, really struggling. So let's just go to the Lord and, and look at what he's done for us. And we spent about 20 minutes just praying together out loud, thanking God for what he's done in our lives. From things as mundane as the rain that makes the grass grow and for cooler weather at night, from that to the, the glory of salvation in Jesus Christ that he's forged for us, for our families, for a beautiful church building to meet in, for the ability to stream with technology, for a wonderful staff family, all these things that God has given to us and what happened to our hearts? They turned to praise, they turned to joy, they turned to gratitude. You know, gratitude helps us reorient our focus back onto the giver of every good and perfect gift, the Father of lights, the fount of every blessing. I recommend you give it a try. I know it's trite to count your blessings, but it really is powerful when you find yourself in a place of self-pity or a place of despair and sorrow. Not only has God done great things for us in the past, but he's going to do even greater things in the future. Look at verses six through eight. You've heard, now you see all this. And will you not declare it? From this time forth, I announce to you new things, hidden things that you have not known. They are created now, not long ago, before today, you've never heard of them. Lest you should say, oh, I knew that. Behold, I knew them. You've never heard, you've never known. From of old, your ear has not been opened. For I knew that you would surely deal treacherously and that from before birth, you were called a rebel. Anybody here not like surprises? You know, my wife tends to not like surprises. I, I just kind of quit doing that. Earlier, you know, in our marriage and stuff, I'd say, I got something big. And she'd say, I don't like surprises. Just don't, you know, don't even try that. And some people are like that. They don't want to, to be surprised. They want to know what's going on. But God tells us here, I'm going to do some amazing things, but you're not going to know what they are. It's going to completely surprise you. 
You're never going to see him come unless you say, oh yeah, I knew he'd do that. Because our tendency, again, is to rebel against God's sovereignty. We are prone to resist his control as we pretend as if we're actually in charge of our own lives. Instead, God wants us to learn to trust him every moment of every day. That's why we pray, give us our daily bread, just enough to get through the next day. And then tomorrow we'll do it all again as we rely on you. So if God does all this, not because we're so awesome, then why does he do it? That's part two, because of who God is. Look at verses nine to 13. This is our blessed assurance in the midst of a world that seems to be hopelessly broken. Hear these words. For my name's sake, God says, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I've tried you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. Listen to me, O Jacob and Israel, whom I called. I am he, I am the first, I am the last. My hand laid the foundation of the earth and my right hand spread out the heavens. When I call to them, they stand forth together. That's who our God is. That's a key passage in all of the Bible. And I want us to do a deep dive, okay? So just put your thinking caps on for one second. God may seem to you at first to be kind of like a whiny child here. I'm not sharing. I'm not giving my glory to anyone else. I, I'm keeping my glory. How should my name be profaned? I'm doing all this for me. But let me ask you this. Is it right and good for you and for me to give glory to that which is most ultimately glorious? Yes, it is. Anything else would be idolatry, right? Well, then the, the reverse is true too. Is it right and good for God to give glory to that which is ultimately glorious. Yes. And if he didn't, he would be an idolater. So it's right for you and it's right for God. And it's right for me to give glory to God because he is ultimately glorious. That just makes logical sense, right? I, that hit me in college for the first time. and It's kind of transformed how I see the Lord in scripture like this. Both God and humans do the right thing by bringing glory to the most worthy being in all of the universe, the high and holy triune God. Here's another cool thing about this passage. Not only does our moral performance not earn God's good grace, but it's our lousy performance that actually displays the riches of God's grace. The worse off we are, the better God looks in saving us, the more impressive his rescue actually is. I love how Andrew Peterson, again, puts it in a song. Maybe it's a better thing, a better thing to be more than merely innocent, to, but to be broken and then redeemed by love. It's a better thing to be more than innocent, but to be broken and then redeemed by love. 
Why did God allow sin to enter the world in the first place? To fully display the riches of his grace so that we all would see it together and marvel at his glory. And that's our assurance. It seems hopeless, we're so messed up, God. No, that's the beauty of it. His grace is even greater than all of our sin. Not only is the only one who is worthy, the Lord God, but that also means he's the only one who can rescue us. He's the first and the last, the everlasting God who stretched out the heavens. He can save you. I've had people in my office tell me, but you don't know what I've done. As if I have it all together. (laughs) There is no one, no one who is beneath the Lord's grace. No one whom he cannot save. I hope you know that. And I hope you know that none of us are above anyone else. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. And that leads us to part three, an invitation to meet the one through whom God is going to do all of this. The invitation to meet the hero. Verses 14 and 15. This is not the hero, okay? <laughs> Just, this is not the hero. Assemble all of you and listen. Who among them has declared these things? The Lord loves him. He shall perform his purpose on Babylon, and his arm shall be against the Chaldeans. I, even I, have spoken and called him, and I've brought him, and he will prosper in his way. Again, that sounds like the hero, but this is talking about Cyrus. Remember, Cyrus is a pagan warlord. He's, he's not a good dude. He, he's been mercilessly, uh, mercilessly conquering all these civilizations as he comes from the Persian Empire, he founded the Persian Empire that eventually would come and kick the Babylonians out and send the Jews back home. God definitely used him, but he's not the hero. Remember the, the, the Jews were so offended that God would use this Cyrus guy. They're like, really? We don't want him to be the one that sends us back home. We, we want the Messiah to do it. And God says, I'm not using the Messiah. I'm using this pagan dude named Cyrus. But the cool thing is that Cyrus is a symbol. He's a preview of a rescuer who will come, a greater deliverer who would one day come to rescue all of God's people in the most dramatic way possible. Not like Cyrus with a sword and with an army, not how we would expect riding in on a war horse and and driving out the Romans, but instead dying on a Roman cross. That's the hero that God points to in the next verse. Look at verse 16. Draw near to me, hear this, the Lord says. From the beginning, I've not spoken in secret. From the time it came to be, I have been there, end quote. All the scholars say now a new speaker starts to speak. And now the Lord God has sent me and his spirit. Go back one, Miles. This, a lot of theologians see the Trinity here. The Lord God, the Father, me, the servant, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit, all in one verse. Isn't that amazing? All right, keep going. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, I am the Lord your God, who teaches you to profit, who leads you in the way that you should go. Now the Lord has sent me. This is the unnamed servant that we got a glimpse at in in chapter 42. He's he's kind of a a masked man. He's kind of a secret identity. We don't know his true identity. He's a mysterious 
figure that shows up throughout Isaiah. We're going to get a good look at him next week in chapter 49, but, but here Isaiah is pointing beyond Cyrus to a greater deliverer, a, one who is known as the Messiah, who again comes to redeem us. And, and all that work of God leads to our flourishing. It leads to the way that we should go, to our prophet, verse 17 says. Keep going to verse 18. Oh, that you had paid attention to my commandments. Then your peace would have been like a river and your righteousness like the waves of the sea. Your offspring would have been like the sand and your descendants like its grains. Their name would never be cut off or destroyed from before me. All this work of God not only leads to his glory and his name being elevated, but it leads to our flourishing. It leads to human flourishing. He teaches us to profit, real profit, not money, but real gain. He wants us to thrive. He laments our stubbornness that leads to destruction. He, he's like a good father. I, I know there's several of, of our church members who are amazing, godly, wise parents, but whose children have chosen a path that leads to pain and leads to sorrow. And these parents are so grieved by that. Our God's the same way. But here's the thing, God's glory and our good are not two separate things. They're the same thing. John Piper always says that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. God's glory and our good are the same thing. Finally, we see uh, in part four the kind of flourishing that happens when we trust in him and follow his lead by faith and receive the rescue from the hero. Look at verses 20 to 22. Go out from Babylon, flee from Chaldea, go home, declare this with a shout of joy, proclaim it, send it out to the end of the earth, say, the Lord has redeemed his servant Jacob. They did not thirst when he led them through the deserts. He made water flow for them from the rock. This is Exodus language, right? They're about to have another Exodus as they leave Babylon and go home. He split the rock and the water gushed out. There is no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked. What a strange way to end that chapter. Why does Isaiah give us a word of warning? There is no peace for the wicked here. This is the climax of the, the last nine chapters, really. God's telling his people, look, I'm going to rescue you like I've done before, but you never seem to learn. The rescue I've done before doesn't seem to teach you anything. All the commentators note how confrontational this chapter is. You've seen it, right? God's telling his children here to make a choice. Just because they're going home to Jerusalem doesn't mean they're going to their father. Does that make sense? One of the commentary, uh, Alec Motyer says, a change of address is not necessarily a change of heart. God's warning us that if we don't come home to him, then we aren't free at all. If our hearts remain far from him, then we haven't truly been rescued at all. So the question before us today is to whom or to what are we looking to truly save us? 
Where do we find our home when we go home? In, in what do we hope? In whom do we trust to rescue us and to deliver us? Who do we believe is actually capable of saving us and somehow bringing good out of all the tragedy we see around us? Rescue is certain when we listen. How many times in this chapter does it say hear? I think it's five or six times. Listen to the words of our Lord. Listen to the servant. Pay attention to what he's saying and surrender to it. Give our lives and our wills over to the high and the holy God who alone is worthy to receive them. And, and we don't do this because of anything, how awesome we are. We do it because of how awesome God is. Because he's certain to reveal his glory and all flesh will see it together. And the amazing thing is, is that when we let go, like that lady falling off the building, and you trust in the hero and their ability to come and swoop us up, the result is true praise that just wells up inside of us. And then we find peace for the righteous who are in Christ. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you tell us in your word that you leave us your peace, not as the world gives do you give, but you give us your peace. That means that you give us your righteousness because there is no peace for the wicked. But when we are made right with you, made right with one another, made right with our families, made right with our coworkers, made right with the world, God, when we are standing in righteousness, when we are conformed to your word and to the word, then God, we find peace. Oh God, would you please come now and conform us? Would you teach us to sing your praises from hearts of gratitude? Would you well up inside of us a song of, of praise, a song of joy because of who you are? not because of who we are. God, I pray that you would come and meet with us now as we commune with you through this special time of communion, of meeting with you through the feast of forgiveness at the table of mercy. Lord, we love you. We thank you that you are our rescuer and that we have blessed assurance in you. We pray this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen.